Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Sandra Leal. Uh, Dr. Leal is the Executive Vice President of Symphonia RX. She's also the President-elect of APHA, so her year as President will serve from 2021 to 2022. And she went to pharmacy school at the University of Colorado Skag School of Pharmacy. Go Buffaloes. She also has a master's in public health, making her only the second person on this podcast to have a master's in pu- public health. So welcome, Dr. Leal. Thank you for the invitation to participate. Oh, it, the pleasure is all mine, especially with your role in pharmacy. You're a, you're a little bit bigger player than I am, so it's always my pleasure to get people like you on. Uh, I did invite you on the podcast today because we want to talk about provider status. This is something that's been brought up on nearly every episode, maybe every other episode with a lot of people want to see change. And this is something that you're pretty passionate about. Can you explain kind of what this is to the listeners so we can start from the beginning and why you're so passionate about it? Absolutely. Uh, You know, provider status has been the platform that my entire career has pretty much been based on. Um, I will start with just the first time I ever heard it. I was actually sitting in a classroom in pharmacy school and I heard some statement from one of the professors that, that, that said that we were not recognized as healthcare providers. And I was kind of like, did I hear that right? Uh, is that really true? So I actually went home and did a little bit of research and it really didn't, I didn't understand what that meant at the time. And then really once I got into practice and started uh, doing the work that I was doing, I realized what the implications of that was. So essentially um, not being recognized as a healthcare provider under CMS, um, and under uh, payment models was really significant because a lot of the work that I've been uh, wanting to do, uh, being in a, in a clinical practice in an ambulatory care setting and trying to essentially have justification and payment for the clinical services that I was providing like any other provider was not recognized. And so we were always excluded from being able to um, essentially create billing for the same clinical services that other providers are able to do. And so that is essentially provider status and, and why the implications are so great. Uh, it makes it really hard when you're trying to do your work to have justification for your um, position. Uh, when I was, again, in the clinic, I was trying to definitely justify my position. But as I was trying to bring on other pharmacists, um, I had to obviously like re- really try to justify that, that second position to uh, my CFO and to the administrators within the practice to be able to say, you know, we can pay for our practice and then we can bring value to the organization. So that's why it's been such a significant um, challenge and something that I've always been fighting for and advocating for because uh, because I wanted to practice the way that I was trained and not having provider status didn't it didn't prevent me from doing it. It just made it a lot harder. Um, and so that's really why I care so much about it. And even till this day, even though I've changed my practice, I still have, there's so many implications every day um, related to this, that it really impacts the profession very, very greatly. What were some of the roles you had previously, like you mentioned, where you thought provider status would have been important for you to not just justify you being there, but to, so that you could do more as a pharmacist, like you said, to practice as you were trained? What were some of those roles that you really thought you needed that in? 
Um, a lot of the roles were uh, essentially trying to grow the practice. You know, when I first, uh, I did a residency at the VA. And so, you know, that was a, a payer model where the VA essentially used pharmacists and then they saw the great value that they brought to the system. You had a one pay, like a, you know, a one payer model essentially. So it wasn't as challenging in that environment versus once I was out in an FQHC in a federally qualified health center, um, you did not, have, I, I did not have that overlay of the VA or other practices that I uh, trained at, like in Kaiser, um, to be able to justify my services in the same way. So in an FQHC, we were basically contracting with Medicare, with Medicaid, and with commercial plans. And um, by not being able to submit billing like other providers, um, my my case was always a little bit more challenging when I was trying to justify my services within um, my practice. So I actually started uh, my position through a, um, a grant through a 340B program at the time, and we leveraged the 340B program to pay for what they called um, cost centers or, you know, services that were not covered by usual services. So we used the 340B to pay for that. And so that helped me initially see the program that wasn't a guaranteed program forever. So it's sort of like a uh, some funding to start it. And then from that point on, and I remember very clearly when I went to work uh, at the Federally Qualified Health Center, that it was only a two-year kind of a pilot model. Um, at that point, I had to actually justify post the two years to see if they wanted to keep my position. And then in order to grow, and that was, I think, the biggest um, significant challenge for me is once I was there, the providers really believed in what I was doing. They definitely thought that there was tremendous value. We were documenting the impact that we were making. Um, and there was always more patients to see. So my primary interest has always been diabetes. I'm a certified diabetes educator. And so for every you know, 10 to 15 patients I could see, there were always maybe 20, 30, 40 people behind uh, the line that I couldn't see because there wasn't enough pharmacists to help. Um, in the practice. And so every single time I was trying to justify a new position because the, the the need was there, it was always a big push and a challenge to try to get that justification um, to our administrators to be able to do that. And now in, in, at Symphonia, when I went to, from the FQHC to Symphonia, my position uh, became vice president for innovation. And a lot of the innovation work um, that I was part of is also trying to um, really justify pharmacists within collaborative practice agreements. In One was in an integrated behavioral health clinic. Um, others were working with different value-based organizations like accountable care organizations. And again, just plugging in a pharmacist, putting them in there in the practice and then trying to justify to whoever we were trying to contract with for the services. And uh, you know, one of the things that immediately, immediately comes up is, well, how do you generate revenue if you're not recognized? And so, you know, having to really work through that and, and show the value is is over the years how um, I've been able to do that, even though we haven't had the provider status, uh, I've still been able to accomplish that because we were still showing significant impact through documentation, through the metrics that we were measuring and through the um, risk that these institutions had. And, and we were trying to mitigate that risk and show value in a different kind of way. Yeah, so that's a, that's obviously... A pretty great way to, that you know you can get these grants and get some of the 340b money to help support what you're doing and that's huge especially if you know if the federally qualified health centers because they tend to deal with people if i remember correctly who are more indigent or low income so that's a good way to really make an impact in the overall healthcare spending whether it be medicare or medicaid which is coming right out of the federal government's 
you know, bottom line and what taxpayer revenues are, which I thought was kind of interesting that you said you worked at the, you know, the, you kind of started at the VA and basically there, it wasn't an issue. You were kind of treated or allowed to be a provider. It might not have used that title, but from what the practices and what I know of people do there as pharmacists, you, you basically acted like a provider. So even though the federal program was using you basically as a provider, they still don't recognize you as one. I find that kind of ironic. Do you? It, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, uh, it, even just the the fact that like we have to justify the healthcare provider status, it, it's always funny to me because obviously we're pharmacists and we're part of the healthcare team. And it, I almost find it offensive not to be considered yeah. a provider. I think about that all the time. I'm like, really, this is so strange to me that we're still having this discussion now, 2020, uh, and that's still the battle that we have to have. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I've actually just recently, me and other pharmacists were talking with some of the COVID stuff with hydroxychloroquine being mass prescribed. We would call physicians and say, hey, you know, we need a diagnosis code for this. Or a lot of times when it came to some of the COVID related topics, when we called to question or we called to like audit it or called just to do our due diligence, a lot of times some of the healthcare providers that were either nurse practitioners or MDs would just tell us, I don't have to discuss this with the pharmacist. You're not a provider. And I'm like, well, you do, I have the medication here and then they try and hide behind HIPAA then. And we just, we thought that was really weird that a lot of the COVID diagnosis is we're all of a sudden getting this provider thing and HIPAA laws thrown back at us. And we're like, well, well, we're not just like a vending machine here. We're doing this for right. the best interest of everybody. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. That dialogue goes on. And I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's part of building a team and, and trying to build the trust and having, um, the experience of working with individuals like this, I think what I'm really excited about now is that you are starting to see pharmacists, you know, in all sorts of different positions in emergency rooms, you're seeing them in health systems now more commonly, um, you're obviously still seeing them in the community pharmacy, but to taking on a lot of different types of roles to have more exposure. And then the uh, on the other side, the other providers, the MDs, the nurse practitioners, all the other groups that we're working with, behavioral health specialists, social work, um, really starting to see the value of what we can bring to the table because they're getting more exposure to us in those types of roles. Yeah, uh, But it takes time, of course. Yeah, and I think there's one thing that, at least the way I like the APHA has pushed it, is we don't want to push for provider status only in the hospital or provider status only in certain settings. We need to have it kind of all-encompassing for pharmacy because there are things that we do out in the community that would fall into provider status or that we could do to help streamline care and help uh, basically save costs when it comes to things. Is that kind of the way that they're pushing for it, if I understand correctly? Absolutely. It's, it's you know, provider status in any in any practice that you're at, because you can really make impact in any setting. And so um, I've always, you know, they've always asked me, well, what kind of pharmacist is it, you know, pharmacists that are this or pharmacists that are that or this kind of training? I'm like, you know, really, you can make an impact in your practice site. Um, for patients in uh, multiple ways, right? If you're in a community setting, the the opportunity you have to to help patients with chronic conditions, to do monitoring, point of care testing, it's tremendous. There's a lot of value. Um, I actually, the, with Symphonia right now, what we do is a lot of the telehealth consults with patients. And, you know, when I first, um, in fact, when I left uh, my practice at the FQHC and I went from this very, very integrated practice with collaborative practice agreements in a very, um, I guess, in a very face-to-face -face setting, I don't know how else to say it, but very integrated setting to what was considered like telephonic or telehealth. People were like, why did you do that? Why did you leave this incredible practice to do that? Um, because that's not as clinical. And to me, I, I always thought, you know, it's not that one is better than the other. It's that 
all of these together are touch points that pharmacists can have with the patient so that the patient has a better um, outcomes that they have the touch points and the advocacy that they need from the pharmacist um, in a way that's in my mind scalable. And one of the things that I was frustrated with when I was working um, in a setting uh, at the FKC, nothing wrong with the setting, but I was frustrated with the same uh, problem that patients were always experiencing that were barriers to care and that there was not enough uh, providers to be able to to really meet the needs of the patient. So. Uh, I figured that if we could let leverage technology and really do outreach to people in a in a very scalable way and and um, you know and, and really reach people where where they were at at home um, in rural communities that potentially didn't have as accessible providers. Um, I'm Spanish speaking. My first language was Spanish, and one of the things that I also saw was that we didn't have enough Spanish speaking providers. So being able to connect people um, because they have a language barrier with a pharmacist that speaks a language. All of those things were values that telehealth brought to the table that were maybe not necessarily accessible, even though they might be um, in front of a person. So, again, it's not that one's better than the other, but together um, and multiple touch points is really the best way to, to really connect a person to care more continuously and then avoid the fragmentation that we see as people are jumping from, you know, now we have so many options, right? We have urgent care, we have emergency rooms, we have primary care, we have the minute clinics, we have all these different um, access points. And if uh, nobody's really managing or coordinating that care for the for the individual patient, at the end of the day, there's so much risk for uh, medication errors and, and things that are missed because not one person is coordinating that care and collecting all of the different things that are happening with that individual. And, you know, we always hope the patient is obviously advocating for themselves and carrying that information. But uh, but we know that there's so many health literacy issues, so much social determinant issues that are happening that it's sometimes really hard to expect that from a from a person when they might not have the tools or resources to be able to do that effectively. Yeah. And, you know, you hit that on the head because a lot of times people just don't know to ask, don't know what to ask, don't know, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, to, to be an advocate for themselves. They just think, oh, I walked into my physician's office or my primary care provider and they know it all. But they might not, mm-hmm. you know, we might see something that they didn't see or, or vice versa. So if you don't know, you won't ask. It's just that simple. I mean, you, you don't know. How are you supposed to know to ask? Um, the, the one thing I think that's kind of you touched on was diabetes is one where obviously we can make a lot of adjustments, whether it be insulin on, you know, to the prescription, things like that, because we're seeing where insurances don't think people are inherent, adherent to the medication, but there's a change made. We can make documentation of that. You know all those little things, and obviously, a certified di- as a certified diabetes educator, you would know. But with COVID, we're really seeing that demand flare up, where now we're being recognized, and you're seeing Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, all these major pharmacy chains really reach out to do COVID testing, whether it's in a parking lot, in a drive-through, or in a something they just kind of set up. We're seeing a lot more of that. Do you think that COVID will kind of push that? That help get us to the finish line with that? I hope so. I absolutely see that, you know, it's been very apparent uh, to everybody how essential pharmacists are and not just here in the United States, which is incredible. Like we're seeing, you know, countries like Italy and Spain that were very, very much using the pharmacists as a front line. The only places that really ended up staying open um, when everything else was shutting down was grocery stores and pharmacies and, you know, the, the healthcare uh, system. So to to be recognized in that way, is really, I think, opened up and exposed how how important it is 
to have that pharmacist be local, to be accessible. And even in communities, I mean, we see this every day, right? We see community pharmacies, independents that are shutting down. And and it's it's very unfortunate. It's pharmacies that have been there for a hundred years that are shutting down. And now you're actually removing an access point and you really don't know how much you're gonna miss it until it's gone. And yeah. that's too late. We miss the boat if we if we get all the way there and then realize, oh my gosh, um, we've we've seen it in communities where there's a, a pharmacy that burns down, and all of a sudden that that community now doesn't have an access point. It's very similar to when you have a you know a, a community a neighborhood that doesn't have a grocery store that's very nearby. There's a lot of significant implications to that. And um, and now with people, now we have so many people with chronic conditions that you really do need, you know, a local advocate there that you can walk in, ask your questions, be a service uh, point that can really help navigate um, whatever conditions you have, uh, especially when you, you know, when you don't know where else to go. And so, um, I, you know, I just had, I, I, I had an incident not that long ago where I was out with a family member who has type 1 diabetes and um, her insulin pump failed. And uh, we were just thinking like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. It was a Saturday night, like at, I don't know, 7 p.m. in Tucson, Arizona. That's and I remember, <laughs> yeah, it was, I'm like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We were not close to home. I mean, it was within driving condition, you know, driving distance. But I thought, well, let's just hit a pharmacy. You know, you can buy regular insulin without a prescription. And I'm like, we can go buy insulin syringes um, and regular if we need it. And we must have driven, and I'm not kidding, in Tucson to like around, I don't know, eight or nine different pharmacies, and they were all closed. Yeah. And so we ended up driving home, <clears throat> which was like 45 minutes or so, um, and made it, everything was fine. But I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this is insane. I've never had to actually do that before where I was in Saturday night trying to do that. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'm just going to go to the emergency room. Of course, I wasn't going to do that. But at <laughs> the same time, I was just thinking about the implications of not being able to go to a pharmacy and be able to to access um, care like that when I know that's possible if the pharmacy was open. So then I just thought, oh, my gosh, imagine being in a rural community or imagine, imagine the closest pharmacy to me that's, I don't know, 30 miles away, now gone. What do you do? And so those are the significant implications of, of what we're seeing when you shut down a community pharmacy or that access point. Um, people won't know until they're gone. And that's unfortunate. And we really have to figure out a different way to, to handle that. Yeah, when you hit the point, too, and you said, you know, do we go to an emergency room? That's one heck of a bill just to get one vial of insulin that is just totally unnecessary when you have a pharmacist who could dispense that, who could look up their history, whether it be in a state database or an EMR of some sort, whatever it is, right? They could look it up and just go, hey, you need Humalog. All right. Let's All right. pull a refill off there, transfer it, emergency situation, document it. There you go. We now saved you a $5,000 emergency room bill for one vial of insulin that was maybe 100 bucks. Absolutely. And that that is um, that is exactly what we see people end up doing. They end up going to an emergency room. They stay a few hours and then then they have to deal with the uh, collections or, you know, some significantly high deductible that was just a real blow to their finances. And that's every day now. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And that's whether you're in rural America, urban America, no matter where in America, that bill is going to be big. And it I mean, heck, I'm a pharmacist and I still shudder at thinking what those bills can be. I can't imagine some people who are on the much lower end of the uh, of the income spectrum. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, moving on here, though. So we kind of hit on a little bit with COVID. 
wasn't there provider status in some of the bills recently? Like I think it was the CARES Act or was it the HEROES Act, one of them? Yeah, there was some language there to try to uh, have pharmacists be able to um, order COVID tests and uh, be recognized for that. And so that's that is an ongoing discussion. There has been a lot of significant progress, but still a lot of confusion um, that's coming out. And so, you know, at first, when it first came out, it, we thought it was a sweeping legislation that would be for all 50 states. And then there was some back and forth where the states had to go in and see what their um, what their scope of work was. Um, and then still address that. And so uh, so APHA has been leading a lot of the discussions to clarify that other pharmacy organizations have been at the table and there's still language. There's uh, potentially another bill that, you know, we're still having discussions around that um, to get like Part uh, B coverage and um, some additional recognition. So it, it really is. I believe this pandemic is opening up a, a lot of discussions around provider status. Um, and we're also talking a lot about telehealth because telehealth obviously has boomed during COVID. Um, and again, pharmacists are not listed as one of the recognized telehealth providers. So that is another access uh, point and, and recognition point that we definitely want to push for. And we're talking about um, as we're having this, these discussions with CMS um, to continue to think about, you know, including the pharmacists now more than ever and then continuing those flexibilities and those inclusions post-pandemic. So not just during this emergency um, situation, but actually post-pandemic. So so that's ongoing discussions. I think like APHA, I feel like they're uh, on a weekly basis meeting with uh, legislators and CMS to try to get that ad advocacy for our profession. Yeah, I'm, I know Scott Knower is a, a pretty aggressive guy when it comes to this topic. So I got a little faith that he's he's doing everything he can to put the pedal to the floor on this one to try and get it moving along if you will absolutely no it's really um it's really nice to have the support we've got a really great staff um, very uh, very involved and engaged and you know they really ask a lot of the pharmacists out in the fields what the experiences are and then take that um, to cms to see what we can do to hopefully facilitate access to patients and ultimately have you know better outcomes but it really will take um, us to continue to advocate, you know, there's always these petitions that keep coming out in the last couple of, you know, days, I've seen a lot of them come out so that you can write your congressman, um, call them for support and be able to get the word out on it. Yeah, I forget the exact uh, website uh, URL, but it's APHA's Action Center. If someone wants to look that mm -hmm. up, you can go there and they have all sorts of stuff. You can reach out to your congressman. You can post it on Twitter. I know I did that with the political pharmacist handle on Twitter and got a bunch of people liking it and even retweeting it. And I was like, wow, that's that was way more effective than I thought it was going to be because I didn't realize people were actually going to retweet that or was going to post it for me. So I thought that was a, a pretty cool way to see that. Uh, you did. Yeah, it doesn't take it doesn't take more than like a minute to fill out. Out you get out a little bit extra text for your experience, but it is super quick to do it. So I highly recommend people take the minute to do that. I didn't time it, but from the time I clicked the link that when it was shared, I didn't add any extra verbiage, but I think it was under 20 seconds. I mean, the, the yeah. rate limiting step was my phone to load. I know that much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I was like, wow, that was, uh, that was pretty quick. Uh, the, the one thing you did mention there was that states have different levels of provider status. And I've had people on from kind of the states that are way open with it, like Idaho. And I've had people on from states like New York that are very restrictive. I live in Ohio where we have provider status, but we're kind of... Mm -hmm feeling it out, if you will. We haven't, we, we have it, but we haven't really seen a whole lot come of it yet to fruition. What do you think that the provider status in the different states can do? Do you think that 
we're going to kind of let this groundswell from the states where all of a sudden now there's a majority of states, they're going to reach out and then it's going to pass federally? Or do you think that, you know, this is something that's just, it has to be done federally because of how much Medicare and Medicaid are involved in this? You know, I don't think there's, um, well, we tried a diff- different strategy. So I know that for a while there, we were really pushing the federal provider status language at that level and then really helping not helping, but really advocating with the states to work on their local states of practice because it was going to have to uh, be at that level in the state to then follow the federal. Um, obviously, we've had challenges with the federal legislation. Doesn't mean we're stopping because there's still so much advocacy going on and a lot of um, positive movement in the federal level. But really, it has to be at all levels. And there, I don't think that there's one approach that is better than another. I truly believe that advocating locally, even within your institution, you can really make a lot of progress to the advancements that you can have within your own, uh, maybe the provider groups that you work with or within the institution that you're practicing in. So locally, your your policies and procedures, um, your standing orders within your practice, um, the relationships with the community pharmacist and the local providers, all of those relationships in my mind are a form of provider status. Uh, and that you really can actually influence yourself. And then um, on a state level, absolutely advocating for changes within your state. Um, I think that's very critical because obviously there's implications to your daily practice uh, based on the state scope of practice, based on the recognition within the state uh, model that you have. And then absolutely on the federal. So I don't think that there's one that's better than the other. I think if we collectively do all of those things together, um, that you will start seeing a groundswell of, uh, of more practices that are essentially demanding that recognition. Um, so I've always been, you know, somebody that's been very open to sharing anything that I can as far as language that I've used, uh, protocols that I've used, uh, you know, anything I could do to to sit within our state association for advocacy and then our state collaborating with another state or working with uh, NASPA because they have like, they've collected model language that we can share between different states, anything that we can learn from each other and then share with each other that that helps the profession move forward. I think that's truly how collectively we make um, we make the case for pharmacy. And so I've seen that so much more. And as you can, you know, every year now you start seeing legislation in the hundreds where there are different bills that are going in um, locally, but then you're also seeing that push from the federal level. And guess what? The federal level uses state examples and state examples use federal um, so you, you, I, I don't think we would be successful if we didn't really play off of each other and really push together. But I can't stress enough how even at that local level, you can really make that impact and that difference um, because you, you really can. You can, you, you can actually establish local protocols. You can work with a local payer. You don't need provider status to contract with a local health plan, a commercial plan, or maybe an employer-based group that's paying for their employees. Um, if, if they see that what you're doing provides value, you can contract with them and you don't necessarily need the, the official provider status recognition to be able to still do that locally or uh, with commercial plans in a local area. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it is I know as much as we talk about this is a political podcast with pharmacies, it's about as niche as it gets. But the way you kind of word of that, there is a workaround if you can work with a plan. Mm-hmm worth a local business, maybe it's even like a local city government if you're an independent pharmacy, yeah. 
in a small town, you can say, hey, look, we can provide your prescriptions. But we can also do more. We can do blood pressure screenings. We can do some of your diabetes checks. We can have patient education stuff. We can do these sort of things. You know, just if you can take care of us for it, we can save you money in the long run by helping with some of your employees and making sure that they're well taken care of. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it because it's kind of taking the politics out of it. It's looking at it from a business sense more so than just the political spectrum that we kind of see this as. So I think it's a, a little bit different take on it, but I think it's also a very valid take on it because that's a way that if someone were to do that in a small town, I live in a town of about 13, 15,000 people. If someone were to be able to do that here and be successful with, with it, they can then show that directly to not just like their state or their uh, local government, but their state officials of look what I did with this one pharmacy, this one store with one pharmacy license to help take better take care of these people and how much they loved me being able to do this. And then that can just kind of like build from there. Now, not everyone works in those type of like awesome independent. I have all the autonomy in the world settings, but that is something that is a very good point to kind of take the politics out of it and just make it about the patient, which is ultimately what this is about. So we can bet- better take care of patients and save money for everybody in the long run. Well, one of the greatest examples that I can share personally um, for an example like that is um, at the at the federally qualified health center that I work with. We work with a local um Indian tribe, and they actually really appreciated the the clinical interventions that we were doing with the patients with diabetes. Um, So because of the relationship that we built with the tribe, they actually ended up funding a full FTE, a full-time equivalent pharmacist and an MA for that pharmacist to be able to support um, the position at, uh, at the tribe which in my mind was like a great example of, hey, if you show impact and if they trust you and if they see the value that you bring, then you can even create contracts like that that are incredible. And that that position still remains. That position started uh, right around 2003. I started at, at the clinic in 2001. We got that position funded in 2003 or so. And to this day, that position is still funded in that way. So um, it's incredible what you can uh, you can do if you really, again, show value. And what I've seen um, towards the latter part of working in the practice I was at at the health center, um, in the last half of my time there, I was there for 14 years, it became easier and easier and easier for me to make the case to add more positions, again, without the the official provider status legislation, because a lot of the models for payment were also changing. They were changing from fee for service to more value to really addressing the keyest metrics. And, you know, for FQECs, they have what they call the UDS. And there were a lot of metrics that you had to target. Um, we also worked with a local accountable care organization and they had all these different measures that pharmacists could impact. And so it became much easier for me to make the case because I was showing impact on those metrics that they needed to show value to reduce their either financial penalties or to receive bonuses um, that would then definitely, you know, offset the cost for me. And they actually saw a return on investment from that. And I want to just say that in general, every healthcare professional is experiencing change. And so I know that a lot of times pharmacists feel frustrated. Well, why do I have to document my value? And why do I have to show impact? Yeah. So that's, that's what's happening for every provider, every single uh, MD that I've been working with MP, they have the same kinds of um, uh, documentation requirements and they have the same metrics now. So it's not just pharmacists anymore. We happen. I feel like we've had the luxury of having to do it for a while that we're actually pretty good at it now. 
Um, and so we're, I feel like we have like a step ahead because we've had to do it just, you know, essentially justify our positions there. This is like a, 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 in a lot of instances, the first time that they've actually had to show value because before they were just recognized and that's what it was. So it's, it's interesting dynamics that are happening there. I think part of that goes back to, at least for me in school, those soap notes were always so painful to write. And I was not a biggest fan of them. And I think because me, I knew I was going into community pharmacy. I'm like, ah, you know what? I do this to get through. I'm, I can I can be adequate at it, but I'm not going to do this every day when I when I go to work. But now that I'm doing more MTMs and I'm doing more things like that and trying to justify some of the interactions I'm doing, I'm essentially doing mini soap notes when you look at some of these MTM platforms. And, and to your point, yeah, you know what? If you can justify what you did, that just means you're doing a good job and it's a good enough job that someone's going to pay you for it. So if it takes a little bit of writing it down to do it or kind of documenting along the way, that's just the, the small, the small pain point we're going to have to have so that we can practice to the top of our education or the practice like the way we're trained, like you said. And you know what? It's really not the worst thing because every other professional has to do it. We've just been used to so long of lick stick, fill, here you go. And there's a side conversation that I had. But really now, because the medication is so expensive, we do need to be able to document, hey, we made this change. It saves this type of money. We made this other change. It, it prevents this, you know, things like that. So, yeah, the documentation, I'll admit, I'm not the biggest fan of it. Anyone who knows me knows I'm not exactly the most type A. But at the same point, it goes so far because it helps justify what we do as pharmacists and helps us, like you said, get recognized as providers eventually down the road. Mm-hmm. I agree. And the other thing you kind of mentioned, Don, which I really liked, was you said you worked with an, an Indian tribe. And that just kind of goes to show you that whether it's politics or business, it all boils down to local. So you mentioned you know working with your state officials and things like that. When they can see that little model and how much it affects their patients or in the, the business end, their, their clients, or in the polit- political end, their constituents – that's what's going to you know, kind of raise their dander to it and be like, oh, what are you doing? And why are you doing this? Why aren't you allowed to do more? And that's really what can help drive it. So even if you don't look at it from the sort of political lens of, hey, we got to get provider status, I need to justify this. If you just look at it as being the best pharmacist you can be, I really think that's in the end is what's going to help drive the provider status to the finish line from those more local levels. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. No, I agree. Yes. All right, great. I'm glad I'm glad we're on the same page with that one. That wraps up part one of my interview with Dr. Leal, president-elect of APHA, about provider status for pharmacists. Part two will be coming out in a few days, so be sure to stay tuned and share that where you can and this part so that we can get this message across as many healthcare professionals, politicians, and patients as we can so they can understand why we need this to help protect them, drive down costs, and do what is right in healthcare while taking care of everybody else, not just our profession. So part two should be coming out in a couple days here. Keep it listening and keep sharing it here at the Political Pharmacist Podcast your prescription for pharmacy and politics.